Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thanks very much for coming along to the first of our 2011 research seminars. Good to see everyone back again. And Andrew is going to kick off this series for us today. Andrew is going to talk to us about the um, extended nuclear deterrence debate today. And uh, basically, in a nutshell, as I understand it, tell us why um, extended nuclear deterrence will remain a feature of uh, the security environment, especially in Asia. Thanks, Michael. And I'd, I'd just like to thank Michael, too, for um, taking on the role of, of coordinator this year of the GAI seminar program. It's, it's much appreciated. Um, look, what I'd like to do today is uh, talk a bit about the project to begin with, and my research aims and where the project fits in terms of all those. Um, I want to start by looking uh, at some of the debates within the literature about extended nuclear deterrence. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of the debates about extended nuclear deterrence essentially focus or concentrate around instrumental and normative issues. One of the key debates is whether extended nuclear deterrence actually works in practice and also a kind of normative dimension too, and that is essentially, is it right that we should continue, that, that certain countries should continue to rely on nuclear weapons as instruments of deterrence and coercion? So there's a kind of two-level uh, discussion in the literature on uh, the strategic instrumental dimension and the normative ethical, uh, ethical dimension. Now, in a sense, none of these debates about, uh, about E&D are particularly new. It's a lot of intellectual ground that was hoed during the Cold War. But I think one thing that is striking, at least to me, and one thing that, that's really driving my research agenda here, is the extent to which a lot of this discussion is informed by a very strong Atlanticist uh, conception or, or framework about assessing the role of, of nuclear weapons and the role of deterrence generally. Um, when we think currently of a lot of the discussions um, in the United States, um, uh, when we think of the, the initiatives like the Nuclear Threat Initiative, uh, the discussion by former US senior US officials about the role of, of nuclear weapons generally, um, the Nunn Perry Kissinger uh, Wall Street Journal article, the idea essentially that these weapons are outmoded, uh, these weapons, uh, you know, we should be aiming uh, to essentially. Uh, eliminate these weapons, and they're in discussion on it uh, in relation to extended nuclear deterrence, uh, is really um, uh, counteractive, counterproductive to, to, that broader, to that broader venture. And in some ways I think it's interesting because when we think back to a lot of the early post-Cold War discussions um, about this, the, the debate between Michael Quinlan, for example, and Michael Maguire in international affairs in the early 90s, uh, the late Michael Quinlan argued essentially that nuclear weapons uh, would, it would become a, we, we're entering what he termed a low uh, salient uh, nuclear world. Nuclear weapons will continue to exist, but in terms of countries' strategic programs uh, and the visibility of these weapons systems, they would decline over time. Maguire was much more in favour of a more radical prescription. We should be aiming for uh, a nuclear free world and therefore any talk about extended nuclear deterrence would essentially be legitimising these weapons, which would be a bad thing for the world uh, generally. And I think as it turned out, Maguire was really reflecting a kind of Euro-centric argument. Um, the fact uh, the Soviet Union had collapsed, 
uh, most NATO countries uh, you know, agreed that there was no longer a, a viable enemy uh, confronting them. In a sense, NATO had built its uh, whole identity, its, its strategic uh, defence force structure capabilities around uh, uh, the prospect of a Soviet invasion across the North German plain. Uh, the role of nuclear weapons for NATO was essentially to blunt that Soviet invasion, give it time to regroup and counter-attack. So in a sense, the argument was for most Europeans, well, frankly, you know, the demise of the Soviet Union uh, uh, means that nuclear weapons are no longer necessary. Uh, these arguments, however, a lot of the European arguments, however, um, were simply not applicable to Asia and are still not um, applicable uh, to Asia. Asia uh, as a region, and in particular here I want to focus on East Asia, uh, has a very different security set of security dynamics to Europe. We know that there is a significant uh, uh, shift occurring in Asia presently, uh, realignment of great power. Uh, uh, great power roles, if you like, uh, slowly unfolding. It's not happening overnight. It's gradually occurring, an incremental process. Uh, there's significant change uh, in various sub-regions. We know that the region um, has witnessed the emergence of a new nuclear weapons state since the end of the Cold War, North Korea. Uh, nuclear modernisation programs are occurring in China and you know, Japan, South Korea in the mix as well. So in a sense, European arguments that we should be looking towards, we should be uh, concentrating on nuclear weapons as a kind of Cold War artefact, uh, really don't have a lot, of, a lot of relevance, I want to argue, in Asia. And I'll go on to substantiate that claim, hopefully, in a little bit more detail throughout this, throughout this presentation. Um, again, to sort of throw one more irony in, into this, throw an irony into this, it's interesting, I think, that um, despite... Um, the uh, strategic role of nuclear weapons in Europe being uh, devalued, if you like, since the end of the Cold War. Europe is the only theatre in which uh, nuclear weapons are currently uh, deployed. At an operational level, five uh, European countries, including Turkey, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, one more, Italy, uh, house uh, NATO nuclear weapons, uh, NATO nuclear sharing arrangements, uh, have nuclear weapons on their territory. By contrast, in, in Asia, there are no nuclear weapons uh, stationed in the region, obviously apart from China and North Korea. Uh, but in terms of uh, US uh, uh, stationing nuclear forces in the region, the United States removed uh, all of its nuclear forces from the region in the early 90s, uh, removed them from the ROK, uh, and removed, um, as far as we know, uh, all nuclear forces from its, um, from its primary strategic base in Guam and uh, remove nuclear weapons from its uh, surface, uh, surface vessels. And I'll talk a little bit more shortly about um, current US deployment patterns in the region. So what I want to do in this presentation, to sort of take this further, um, is to examine three general hypotheses about, uh, about extended nuclear deterrence and try and apply them to East Asia with a view to assessing the future prospects of END in the region. Um, again, I just want to emphasise this is the beginning of a kind of research program for me. Um, I've undertaken some interviews in South Korea and Japan last year. I attended some, uh, some interesting workshops in Beijing as well where this subject was very much on, on the agenda. Uh, this year I'll be travelling to Brussels, NATO headquarters, to talk to some officials there, uh, not only about what NATO's doing uh, with respect to nuclear weapons, but also what NATO's perceptions are of what's happening in East Asia. And, and the future there, uh, in addition to a trip to Washington in a few weeks. Um, but again, 
at, at the outset. I guess if, any, if there's any overall theme to, from today, it's that we should exercise caution in generalising about the drawbacks and limitations of extended nuclear deterrence. Such claims uh, may be apposite uh, in the contemporary European context, uh, but they're not necessarily useful in explaining dynamics in Asia. So beware the Atlanticist uh, interpretation of, uh, of, of, nuclear, of uh, the future, if you like, and the relevance and role of extended nuclear deterrence. Okay, this isn't just a, uh, an opportunity to put a gratuitous slide up um, for sort of testosterone-fueled um, uh, enjoyment. Um, it's a photo of a Trident D5 uh, ballistic missile launched from an Ohio-class attack uh, submarine. Uh, this is the primary uh, means of um, US extended deterrent, nuclear deterrence capability in, uh, in Asia. Um, these submarines, uh, the US has about 40, just over a dozen of them. Um, it's got tw they carry 24 uh, Trident B5s uh, each um, with a significant yield. Uh, and the critical part about uh, submarines is that most of you would know they are a kind of deterrent weapon, a deterrent platform par excellence because they have a secure second strike capability. In layman's terms, that means it's very, very difficult to find them in a crisis situation. Uh, the argument is, is that they reinforce caution on the other side because the other side can never be sure where those subs are deployed and whether their assets uh, are, are in fact vulnerable to attack from those submarines. Um, so in a sense, when we talk about assured retaliation, when we talk about assured deterrence, essentially submarine capability, that, that guarantees that, if you like, um, and, and introduces into the other side's mind, a degree of uncertainty, and I'll talk more about Schelling's conception of, of that shortly. Um, this capability is supplemented by the deployment of B-2 and B-52 um, uh, air, uh, air platforms through uh, Guam. The United States deploys those air assets through Guam, um, armed, uh, presumably, many of them with, with nuclear weapons, um, and the US could deploy those at pretty short notice, and has done <coughs> Uh, uh, during crises uh, in the Korean Peninsula in terms of American signalling. Um, and also uh, the third leg, if, if you like, of the triad, the uh, US land-based forces in the continental US, um, ICBMs uh, based in the US. So essentially, despite the fact that the United States does not, does not deploy directly any nuclear weapons station, I should say, any nuclear weapons in the region, um, they, they still have a significant capability um, to, 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 if you like, extend that deterrent umbrella to, to regional allies. Um, and the coverage, really, we're talking about here uh, is primarily Japan, uh, the Republic of Korea, uh, probably Australia, in all likelihood, um, and possibly Taiwan. Um, the PRC can never be absolutely certain that US extended deterrence guarantees would not cover Taiwan in any in any Taiwan Strait contingency. Um, I'm of the view, um, and you know, it's, it's a contestable uh, claim, um, that because, the United, because Taiwan is not in receipt of any formal security commitment from the US through a security treaty, um, you know, uh, we, can't, we simply can't put it in the same category as Japan and South Korea, uh, both of whom uh, have bilateral security alliances with the United States. The Taiwan's relation Taiwan Relations Act simply does not cover uh, security. Uh, certainly, it doesn't come close to having a security, 
a security guarantee. Whereas, we look, whereas if we look at the texts of the Mutual Defence and Cooperation Treaty with Japan, the Mutual Defence Treaty with the ROK, it's pretty clear that the uh, United States is, is you know, pretty committed, at least on paper, uh, to defending both of these countries. And I think the jury, as we all know, tends to be out on whether ANZUS or could operationalise the US extended nuclear deterrent guarantee for Australia. I think there is an assumption that it probably would. But again, you know, the, the action is really the sorts of scenarios it would cover. Uh, would it cover, for example, a major conventional threat against Australia? Possibly, but unlikely. Uh, would it cover a, a major nuclear threat to Australia? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people believe that it probably would. But again, these sorts of scenarios, I think, uh, you know, are, are open for conjecture. OK. Um, well, really, we are talking, in a way, about a different, form, a different kind of deterrence when we're talking about extended nuclear deterrence. In this presentation, I'm going to touch on a few normative issues, but I primarily want to look at, at instrumental issues, I guess kind of strategic uh, analysis, perhaps more than, more than normative analysis. And I, I want to focus really, I guess, on, on this idea of uh, Robert Jervis's um, of uh, deterrence as really the way in which NAPCA manipulates threats to harm others in order, uh, sorry, in order to coerce them into what they uh, desire. Uh, in, in a sense, a kind of uh, a classic form of political behaviour, uh, the exercise of power. Thomas Schelling, uh, uh, the, his idea of the threat that leaves something to chance, the chance of things sliding out of control, can actually provide credibility uh, to otherwise incredible threats. And this is the kind of, again, one of the inherent paradoxes of the nuclear age, is that in order to appear credible in your behaviour in a particular crisis, you actually do have to issue some threats that you're not entirely convinced will able to be um, uh, controlled. And, uh, of course, a lot of the literature, a lot of the theoretical literature around this um, was really derived from the US experience during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62. Um, you know, this idea, in a sense, that Khrushchev and Kennedy were really pushing the envelope, uh, and, frankly, both didn't have a plan. They, they were essentially flying blind. And in, in Michael Dobbs' book, One Minute to Midnight, stories of US and Soviet submarines playing chicken in the mid-Atlantic, um, you know, essentially both leaders not having any real idea what their, what their nuclear forces were, were doing, particularly their sea-based um, nuclear forces. So in a sense, introducing a high degree of uncertainty, um, high-risk uh, high behaviour. And, and, and again, one of the key questions of deterrence, in a sense, is, is a nice, elegant formulation like this, of course, we can all agree on, but the key question uh, that really did dog the US throughout the Cold War was how much is enough? How much capability do you need to have... Well, two issues. How much capability do you need in order to, to have a credible uh, nuclear deterrent? And B, um, how do you communicate your resolve to your adversaries that you would be willing to use these weapons in certain... Uh, perhaps in some ways undefined scenarios. Um, so resolve and capability were the two, were the two um, you know, primary challenges for, for um, the United States during, during the Cold War. Extended nuclear deterrence is more complex than, than bipolar, when we're talking really here about US-Soviet nuclear deterrence, which is complex enough. Introducing a third uh, or fourth party into the mix makes it even more complex. Um, and I've sort of come up with a, with a formulation there, um, you know, pretty abstract, but, but I think it, it's kind of useful in summing up that. I think the key, the key phrase here, either, either conventional or nuclear. 
Again, uh, US nuclear doctrine throughout the Cold War, in fact NATO nuclear doctrine specifically, envisages the initiation of nuclear weapons not in the context of a nuclear war with the Warsaw Pact, but in the context, as I mentioned earlier, of a major, uh, U a major Soviet conventional in invasion. Uh, essentially that asymmetry in conventional force capabilities meant that NATO uh, had to uh, rely on nuclear weapons to kind of equalise the numerical asymmetry between conventional forces. Uh, you know, and this approach, I think, very much is North Korea's approach. In a sense, there are a lot of parallels between, between what North Korea is doing today in building up its nuclear weapons forces in order to compensate for the decline of its own conventional capabilities, really, since the end of the Cold War. Uh, again, another irony, given that um, US extended deterrence guarantees to South Korea during the Cold War were largely in place to deter uh, you know, a superior North Korean conventional force. So um, capabilities shift, intentions, <coughs> intentions change. And it's interesting, I think, that despite significant lobbying, not just by the kind of traditional Cold War disarmament lobby, if you like, um, Disarmament has now become a very, very respectable uh, pursuit in, in Washington, D.C. And in fact, when you look at some of the key advocates of disar nuclear disarmament in, in, in the United States, you are looking really at, at some pretty senior ex-officials, uh, guys like Kissinger Nunn, um, uh, George Shultz, um, uh, you know, and, and others, in addition to a whole range of think tank and, and, and academic types um, who, who are in there. Arguing in favour of this, I think it's always interesting that it's usually ex-US officials who are arguing in favour of nuclear disarmament. It's, it's very rare that you get incumbent US nuclear officials who actually bite the bullet and say this is a good thing. But anyway, um, so it's interesting that despite the emergence of this, and you know Obama's Prague speech in 2009, where he where he effectively reiterated. What, what some previous presidents had said, and that was that nuclear disarmament remains a long-term goal for the US, didn't put any timetable on it. Uh, despite that, the recent US Nuclear Posture Review released last year uh, refused to embrace what's known as a sole-purpose doctrine for US forces, and that is that the United States would only use nuclear weapons in the case of being threatened or having nuclear weapons used against it or its allies. Essentially, the US didn't do that. The United States um, leaves open the possibility of using nuclear weapons against um, particularly biological uh, warfare threats, but also conventional uh, warfare threats from what it terms um, uh, states who are not in good standing uh, in terms of the non-proliferation regime. Essentially, the Americans are leaving their options open. Again, in, in contrast, in a sense, to China's declaratory policy, which, 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 is, which is explicitly no first use, um, the Chinese will not... Uh, at least in rhetorical terms, have a commitment to not using nuclear weapons first. So no matter what the context, and the Indians have a similar commitment, um, they will not initiate nuclear weapons. So there's some interesting doctrinal differences. I've mentioned the importance of alliances here, uh, the various treaty arrangements. Um, and again, uh, the European context is different. NATO, uh, effectively a multilateral treaty, the one in all in principle in Article 5, the Washington Treaty, uh, very different from US, uh, US San Francisco, uh, the San Francisco Alliance system in Asia, the bilateral hub and spoke system, uh, where the US uh, has, not given, uh, uh, has not given equivalent 
uh, uh, security commitments uh, as it has in Article 5 of the Washington Treaty. I think that's interesting. ANZUS isn't the only treaty that kind of hedges a bit on whether the US would actually come to, to a country's aid. It's interesting that if you read, if you actually look at uh, the Mutual Defence um, Cooperation Treaty with Japan, uh, while there's clauses in there about cooperation and consultation and close coordination of policy, on my last reading of it, in any case, I didn't see anything in there about an ironclad US commitment to come to Japan's uh, assistance. Now, one could argue that that's not necessary in that particular treaty. You have the US-Japan defence guidelines that enshrine defence cooperation to such an extent that... If Japan was threatened, the US would automatically be involved in any conflict. And again, having US forces stationed in Okinawa is uh, you know, presumably an important tripwire uh, as, as well. Now, the issue of credibility is, is obviously important to deterrence, but it's particularly critical uh, with respect to um, extended nuclear deterrence where the state threatening retaliation does not have its national territory threatened directly. Okay? And this was, um, as we know, a big issue for many countries during the Cold War. Um, um, Charles de Gaulle uh, didn't believe the United States, essentially, uh, under Eisenhower, when they were arguing that, well, of course, you know, we would protect France as well, and Paris would be worth as much as you know, Washington or New York. Um, you know, de Gaulle's um, approach was, was pretty much, well, we can only rely on our own capabilities to defend our national territory. What analysts have termed an asymmetry of interests from the US, US point of view. Again, something that dogs American extended uh, deterrent, nuclear deterrence guarantees is the assumption that, well, you know, in the moment of truth, would a United States president put at risk uh, Los Angeles for uh, Tokyo? Uh, would a president authorise the use of, of nuclear weapons against China or North Korea uh, at the risk of having his, uh, his or her own, own territory threatened by uh, that country? You know, it's a very interesting and acute question. And again, you know, I think the jury's still out on that. Highly contextual kind of uh, debate as, as well. So no matter how rhetorically robust um, E&D guarantees remain, the geographical separation of the guarantor and the object of the guarantee inevitably means the credibility deficit and deterrence assurances will always, always be present. Uh, just a very brief uh, quote there from uh, Schelling. Uh, really, I, you know, I think the last uh, sentence is probably um, the most significant. Uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty, pretty famous quote, if you like, that the difference between national homeland and everything abroad uh, from, uh, uh, he was writing primarily from a US perspective, um, having a credible uh, uh, extended deterrence guarantee requires having those, having those intentions, even deliberately acquiring them and communicating them persuasively to make others behave. Um, you know, rich, pick rich pickings here for constructivists, um, uh, but I think it does, you know, it does emphasise the point that it is all about the credibility of resolve, uh, in a sense, uh, more, more than anything, probably even more than capabilities. Okay, sort of moving from some of the, the, the theoretical background here to hopefully something a bit more tangible um, uh, for people. Um, I want to look at three, three hypotheses of extended uh, nuclear deterrence in turn and then, uh, and then focus on um, how these, um, or indeed whether and to what extent, these three hypotheses are applicable to East Asia. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this is very much a work, uh, a work in, in, in progress. 
one of the key strains in the literature that I, I've certainly uh, come across is the argument, the claim that essentially the effects of extended nuclear deterrence have been exaggerated. That what we're dealing with here is a sort of a kind of romancing, an idealistic, backward-looking talking up of extended nuclear deterrence. Uh, people like Jeff Lewis, for example, US-based analyst. Ward Wilson, who's written a range of articles, including a, a very interesting piece in international security. And a very own Richard Tanter, like Peter Hayes, argue that essentially there is very little evidence to, to assume that extended nuclear deterrence has performed a stabilising role in regional contexts either in terms of deterring adversaries from undertaking destabilising behaviour via threat of punishment or contributing towards uh, persuading allies that they don't require their own nukes for national uh, defence reassurance. And I overlooked to sort of mention this, this two-level dimension of extended nuclear deterrence at the outset. Perhaps the most visible and obvious benefit, if you like, from extended nuclear deterrence is the extent to which the threat of punishment from the guarantor deters uh, certain types of behaviour on the part of potential adversaries. But the second level is, is the degree of reassurance that such guarantees provide to uh, those, who are, those who are receiving them, essentially. So, in short, uh, for a country like Japan, it's been important for Japan's uh, you know, so-called peace of mind that they know the United States would be, you know, would, would actually deter threats from other countries at the, at the nuclear <coughs> level. But also, it's been important to reassure policymakers that they themselves don't have to acquire <coughs> nuclear weapons. People like Wilson, Lewis, and others say this is a bit of a myth. Um, there are other factors that have inhibited Japanese acquisition of nuclear weapons, not least of which um, is potent. Uh, the potent norm of, of non-acquisition of non-proliferation domestically. Um, you know, even if you took the US E&D guarantees out of the equation, uh, according to uh, Lewis in particular, uh, Japan would still exercise restraint because most Japanese don't want the bomb, um, for obvious historical reasons. The second claim in this hypothesis is that geographical remoteness and uh, the asymmetry of interests undermines the credibility of extended nuclear deterrence. Again, particularly cute in the Asian context, whereas you contrast America's NATO-Europe commitments during the Cold War, where it's pretty clear that one of the success stories of the Cold War was the United States' ability to reassure other European countries, particularly countries like Germany, uh, who, who always could have gone down the weapons road, that you know, US assurances to use nuclear weapons were in fact credible. And again, the argument in the Asian context is the US just, its interests in Asia are simply not as, as substantial as they were in Europe. Therefore, the credibility of US assurances are not as strong and therefore open to question. The third uh, point to make here is that the stability-instability paradox undermines the influence of extended nuclear deterrence against new nuclear weapon states. North Korea's behaviour last year, the sinking of the Chenan, for example, early in uh, 10, and uh, the uh, attack on a, um, South Korean uh, islands along the northern limit line demonstrate for many people the fact that North Korea is, is willing to undertake increase, in, increasingly risky activities uh, with its conventional forces in the belief that, that nuclear deterrence will avoid escalation. So the North Koreans are increasingly confident to throw their weight around with conventional forces 
in the belief that the US will be deterred uh, from escalating any conflict to the nuclear level because North Korea has nuclear weapons. So in a sense, it gives them more freedom of action to, to, take, risk, uh, to take risky behaviour behavior with conventional forces. The so-called stability-instability paradox. At one level, greater stability with mutual nuclear deterrence. At a lower level, increased instability because nuclear-armed countries are more willing to use conventional forces. Okay, moving right along. Extended nuclear deterrence is redundant in the 21st century. Um, the first claim here is a, a very important one, I think, and that is that state-based deterrence is Cold War artifact, underscored by the new threat of mass casualty terrorism. Again, strong narrative post-9-11. Uh, you know, these guys couldn't be deterred. Uh, they are effectively, non-state actors are effectively undeterrable, to use a rather unwieldy term. Um, they don't have, they don't operate within the same set of rational actor assumptions as states do. Um, so when we're talking about deterrence and when we're talking about extended deterrence, um, really this was, this was a Cold War kind of model. And it's also often applied to the leaders of, of so-called uh, rogue states, the idea that these leaders, the Ahmadinejads of the world, the Kim Jong-ils, are essentially rational. They don't fit within a kind of Western rational actor model. And that, as a consequence, you know, everything has got to be done to prevent these states from getting clear weapons. And that's a very strong theme running through a lot of US commentary on this issue, particularly in relation to Iran. Um, I think it's interesting, though, just as a side point, that uh, this is nothing new in, in US discourse on non-proliferation for much of the Cold War. The United States portrayed uh, the Chinese leadership as irrational and, and, in fact, used the term rogue state, as Francis Gavin documents uh, in, his, in his work. And as Francis Gavin also points out, there is no historical correlation between a state's uh, so-called uh, rogue state designation from the US and irresponsible behaviour on the part of, of those states in the nuclear realm. China, in fact, and hopefully we'll have some time to talk about this, has been a remarkably responsible nuclear weapons state. Indeed, you could say that in contrast to the US that made several, some thinly, some, some explicit nuclear threats during the Cold War, the Chinese have simply not engaged in that sort of uh, coercive diplomacy in the nuclear area. Okay, but the argument, essentially what we're talking about here, is, is a Cold War artefact, and it's interesting talking to some Chinese analysts in, in Beijing. They use exactly the, the same sort of rhetoric that a lot of American disarmament proponents are using now. This is essentially a Cold War artefact that the United States is still seeking to keep alive in the region as a means of exerting control over its allies. Um, that's the sort of uh, language you get from, uh, not all, but many Chinese analysts uh, on this. Uh, the third hypothesis, um, extended conventional deterrence is just as effective as, as extended nuclear deterrence. A very strong theme of the uh, International Commission on Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament, uh, chaired by uh, Evans and uh, former Japanese Foreign Minister Kawaguchi. Uh, in their report, uh, they were very explicit that essentially uh, conventional weapons, uh, modern uh, conventional weapons can do just as good a job as nuclear weapons. In fact, they can do a better job because their use is much more credible uh, in deterring uh, aggression. And that, in a very real sense, the, it, makes, it makes total sense for the United States to disarm its nuclear forces because the United States has such conventional superiority over its peer competitors 
that you know, nuclear disarmament would in fact be, be highly advantageous to the United States you know, when we think of its um, significant uh, information warfare capabilities. You know, really, there's the United States, then daylight, and then um, you know, NATO countries after that, um, with, with China and Russia uh, down the list a little bit further. So really what we're talking about here uh, is an assumption that conventional weapons can do just as good a job. In fact, they're more precise in their delivery than nuclear weapons. They're more predictable in their effects. And they're more credible because there's no norm of non-use, unlike nuclear weapons, where there would be a significant normative cost for the United States, not least the fact that it's been the only country to use these weapons uh, before. So some of the writings of Nina Tannenwald, uh, T.V. Paul, um, you know, the argument that essentially um, th there has been a taboo of non-use around nuclear weapons that has built up over time. It's not just the U.S., it's, it's, it's countries like Russia, China, and even North Korea. There's some evidence, I think, to suggest that the North Koreans abide by this norm of, of non-use, um, although that'll need much more uh, research, I think. Um, the other argument here is that there's a real danger that Washington will feel compelled to threaten and follow through on nuclear use in a crisis because nuclear weapons form part of security guarantees to specific allies. So, in a, so Scott Sagan's argued the problem with having uh, nuclear weapons in the mix of security guarantees to countries like Japan and the ROK is that in the midst of any crisis, uh, Washington will feel that it, you know, it, it has to sort of demonstrate its resolve by possibly using these weapons, even though it doesn't want to. Now, again, that sounds counterintuitive, but a lot of US grand strategy globally is built around the credibility of US security guarantees worldwide. You know, Henry Kissinger's idea, you know, you drop the ball in one theatre in terms of upholding your commitments, then all of your other allies around the world are, you know, are going to basically be less certain of, of, US, of US leadership in times of crisis. So this, is, this isn't just about nuclear credibility, it's also about the credibility of the US as, as a global leader. Okay, how applicable are they to the East Asian context? How applicable are these uh, hypotheses in, in East Asia? Well, uh, I think the answer's uh, mixed, and I've got a lot more research to do on, on this in terms of finding out from uh, regional uh, policymakers uh, and others uh, answers to these questions. Um, but I have a few hypotheses of my own uh, that I want to throw on the table. I think the argument put forward by Wilson and uh, people like Ward Wilson and Jeff Wilson and others, et al., claims that E&D is unreliable or ineffective. They're difficult to verify with certainty. I mean, just as claims that, that END is effective, it is difficult to verify too. Part of the uh, problem here, of course, lies in defining what we mean by success and failure. And, you know, Japan as a case is very illustrative here, I think, in the sense that a lot of people, most people, assume that Japan has been reassured by extended nuclear deterrence guarantees and that, therefore, it has exercised restraint in, in the proliferation uh, uh, domain. Uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, many constructivists would argue that it's less about material power and strategic reassurances and more about uh, the potency of norms domestically in Japan that has inhibited its tendency to proliferate. Maria Ross Rublay has written uh, on this uh, extensively. I think the other point here is that we only need to look at the rhetoric of leaders in the region. 
to dig a bit deeper as well at the rhetoric of, of, of mid-level and senior-level officials to see that the idea of a US nuclear umbrella is, is frequently cited by, the, by these people. Certainly in Japan and the ROK, in the conversations I've had, it, it actually surprised me the extent to which Japanese officials focus on the nuclear dimension of the alliance with the United States and the danger in their view that taking nukes out of the mix, uh, that that would somehow embolden the DPRK. But increasingly from Japan's perspective, China, they're very focused on what the Chinese are doing. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. And I think there's a documented history here of a relationship, a uh, correlation between perceived commitment, between the perceived commitment of the US to East Asia East Asian alliances and the tendency to explore nuclear options when we think about South Korea's nuclear program, which it had during the 1970s under Park Chung-hee. Uh, it initiated this program in the late 60s, uh, around the time of uh, Nixon's Guam Doctrine, around the time that uh, the United States had signalled that it was not going to go in for any more uh, Asian strategic commitments while it had its hands full in Vietnam. The fact that the South Koreans have made a massive contribution to the US war in Vietnam as well with, with very little recompense. The withdrawal of uh, the 1st Infantry Division from South Korea in 1971 under Nixon. All of these developments persuaded the South Korean uh, leadership under, under Park that acquiring nuclear weapons was necessary for national defence. And the sense in which uh, the, percep the, the broader perception that the US was becoming less committed to fulfilling its security alliance commitments to, to the ROK and the importance of, of extended nuclear deterrence in that. Similar, uh, but, but by no means identical, pattern in Japan as well. You know, fears of a US kind of retreat from the region as recently as the end of, uh, of the Cold War with the Clinton administration's first East Asia security initiative in 1982, I think it was, that you know, really hedged about US long-term intentions in the region. The Japanese were very antsy about that. And it wasn't until, until the Nye Report in '95, which reaffirmed America's long-term commitment to Asia, that you saw a kind of drawback of some of those proliferation pressures in, in, uh, among Japanese elites. The second one, extended nuclear deterrence is redundant in the 21st century. There's a bit of overlap with the previous slide, uh, undoubtedly. Um, look, I think the first point to note here is there's actually very little foundation to argue to make the claim that rationality among world leaders is, is in any shorter supply today than it was uh, during, uh, during the Cold War. And again, uh, I think a lot of this can be, can be traced back fairly and squarely uh, to the traditions of US uh, discourse on proliferation and non-proliferation. Non again, go back and look at the rhetoric of the, John, of the Johnson administration when China detonated its first device in 64. Go back and look at the Reagan administration's rhetoric with respect to the USSR in the early 80s. Designations of rogue states rogue states are largely meaningless in terms of describing nuclear weapon states' behaviour. Uh, and Francis Gavin makes that pretty clear in his analysis. Uh, traditional deterrence calculation is still a prominent feature in strategic planning among East Asian states. Uh, Japan's defence white paper last year very surprising for the number of references to deterrence. Uh, Australia's white paper in 2009, ditto. Uh, South Korean policymakers, uh, for obvious reasons, perhaps the more immediate threats from North Korea, are very focused on uh, traditional de deterrence calculations. And it's surprising the extent to which Japanese officials are focused on the, quant on the quantitative metric of the US commitment. 
there were a number of Japanese uh, analysts who, who said to me, and, and, and both in kind of uh, closed forum meetings and in one-on-one -on -one conversations, that they see any drop in US warhead numbers below 1,000 as ringing alarm bells for them. Uh, 1,000 nuclear warheads is seen as, as a significant psychological threshold for many, for many Japanese. And that's, you know, that's real Cold War bean counting stuff um, that, that surprised me. It wasn't so much about American resolve, it was more about the quantity of capability, if you like, that the US could bring to the table. Uh, NATO's nuclear sharing arrangements, I think, a testament to the ongoing relevance of, of END in policymakers' eyes. It's not just the Central and Eastern Europeans uh, who have an obvious, uh, obviously high degree of apprehension about Russian intentions long term. It's actually the Western Europeans who, who are holding on, despite the kind of rhetoric about disarmament, who are actually holding on to nuclear weapons as a hedge, uh, you know, to paraphrase uh, Tony Blair, uh, as a hedge against uncertainty. This idea of nukes is a sort of security blanket uh, against an uncertain strategic uh, future. I might just mention, too, that one thing uh, that has been replicated in, in East Asia from the European experience is the development of an extended deterrence policy committee in the ROK-US relationship. And that, and that followed... That basically, it followed uh, uh, the sinking of the Chernan last year um, uh, with the South Koreans really did say, look, um, we want to have some serious input into US nuclear policy as it affects the Korean Peninsula. This has been a long-standing a long, uh, arrangement in Europe, the Nuclear Policy Group, which was formed in 1966, uh, integrating uh, all of uh, the countries, uh, all, all of the members of NATO, except for France, which, which has refused to be part of the NPG, uh, and, and has a detailed set of cons consultative mechanisms um, so, for example, for much of the 70s and 80s, West Germany was, was a key player in NATO's nuclear politics because of its, because of its role uh, you know, as a potential nuclear weapons state, but also the West Germans making very clear that the stationing of US forces on their territory was, was non-negotiable. Um, and I think there is a, a similar degree of trying to pull the US in to a long-term extended deterrence, uh, extended nuclear deterrence guarantee, um, certainly in South Korea. The Japanese have been exploring a similar mechanism as well. Uh, I won't spend too much time on this. Again, a fortuitous military shot. Um, this is a DF-21 uh, mobile uh, missile launcher. Uh, China's second artillery corps has controlled China's strategic missile forces. And this weapons platform has the Japanese really worried. Uh, it's, it's a medium-range uh, ballistic missile platform. It's, it's mobile, so in any crisis situation it, it can be concealed. Obviously it's difficult to target because by definition it's mobile. And really uh, it's very difficult to pick up uh, from, from US satellites. Now, why are the Japanese worried about this? They're worried about this because in any US-China war, again from their point of view, total worst case scenario, or any US-China conflict, there is a limited exchange of nuclear weapons. Even if the US manages to track most of China's nuclear weapons inventory, and there's a pretty good chance they'll be able to do it in any sort of first strike, it's highly unlikely they'd be able to pinpoint all of these mobile launches. And, and where would the Chinese aim these, launch, uh, the, these missiles, the DF-21s? Well, in all likelihood, not just against US forces in, in Okinawa, but also against Japanese cities. So the Japanese, again, it really surprised me the extent to which the Japanese talked a bit about North Korea, 
but we're much more focused on what the Chinese have been doing in terms of their modernisation program. Okay, penultimate slide. The argument that, that END is just as conventional... Oh, sorry, sorry, it's just as conventional. Extended conventional deterrence is just as effective as, as END. Um, well, I mentioned, I flagged before, that nuclear weapons possess inherent attributes that conventional weapons don't. Um, and we know, historically, the tolerance threshold for conventional conflict has been high, again, in contrast to nuclear conflict. There are very, very strong, compelling uh, normative and material uh, di disincentives to use nuclear weapons. At a, at a pure kind of instrumental level, the fact that these weapons uh, you know, are very, uh, very unpredictable in their effects actually reinforces their deterrent capability. One could make a similar argument about biological weapons, the fact that states don't really have a, have a strong handle on what their effects would be. And the long-term normative consequences as well. You know, I think a lot of people assume that disarmament would become more likely if nuclear weapons were used. I'm not sure that's entirely the case. I think it's equally plausible that states would uh, you know, uh, want to get their hands on, on, on uh, this weapon uh, if its, if it's uh, attributes were, were demonstrated. Again, this argument doesn't wash in Tokyo or Seoul. Uh, after North Korea's nuclear tests in 2006 and 2009, policy elites in both countries wanted a, a formal reaffirmation of, of the US extended nuclear deterrence guarantee. In the case of uh, the, uh, the Lee Myung-Bak administration in 2008, they wanted a written guarantee from the United States, which is significant. I think, and, and what that says about how these countries view the conventional nuclear dimension. Finally, I might end on this point. Um, I think it's... Uh, look, I think, I think the jury's still out, but, but it's, what is clear is that America's latitude to determine the outcome of conventional conflicts in East, East Asia is, is shrinking. Uh, you know, we're not talking about a country here who's going to become a second-rate power anytime soon militarily. But what we are talking about is, is certainly in relation to China. You know, U.S. conventional capability is gradually being offset by China's rising ability to, de to deny the U.S. unfettered access to key parts of, of the maritime environment in East Asia. There have been dramatic advances um, in, in Chinese naval capability, anti-ship strike capabilities. Uh, coupled with a growing emphasis on sea denial operations, not to win any major engagement, but, but effectively to deny the United States access to, say, uh, areas in the South China Sea, certainly the Taiwan Strait. The bottom line of all this is that the costs of US conventional uh, engagement in conventional conflict in Asia are rising. China doesn't have to match the US. All it needs to do is, is to raise those costs to make any US intervention uh, to, uh, certainly to make the US think twice or possibly even three times about intervening. Again, in this kind of, assuming this continues, and you know, it's a big assumption to make, assuming it continues, it suggests that the US may in future may be more, in, more tempted to rely on its nuclear superiority to compensate for con creeping conventional vulnerabilities in, in East Asia. In this context, extended uh, nuclear deterrence will probably become more rather than less salient in, in the region. Now, from the perspective of America's allies, this won't be a positive uh, development. Uh, if the risk of nuclear use increases as US reliance on nuclear weapons rises, uh, over time the threshold for Washington intervening directly with force on behalf of allies may also rise. 
So I think there, there could be potentially be some interesting future uh, uh, trends occurring. And for all, for all those who, who are not Peter Sellers, tragics, um, the photo on the bottom left is uh, from the movie, uh, Dr. Strangelove, How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb. Whether there's an Asian equivalent of Dr. Strangelove, well, you know, the jury's still out on that too, I think. It's all in there. Thank you very much, Andrew. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.